Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books and Biography. I'm Oline Eaton. Today I'm going to be talking with Melanie C. Hawthorne about her book, Finding the Woman Who Didn't Exist, The Curious Life of Giselle de Stock. Hi, Melanie. Thank you so much for joining us for New Books and Biography. I wonder if you could just kick things off by telling us a little bit about yourself. Yes, thank you for having me. Um, I grew up in Britain and I did my undergraduate work there uh, before coming to the States to do graduate work. And I did my graduate work at the University of Michigan and then ended up staying in the States. And I've been at Texas A&M University now for a good number of years. And uh, during that time, I found that my research led me uh, increasingly in the direction of biography. So that's the kind of field I've ended up in, Um, partly because I got interested in the way that we tell stories and the fact that we all love stories so much and the way that lives help to structure stories and stories help to structure lives. So I began uh, mainly, I guess, with uh, the work that I did on the, on the author Rachel, the French decadent writer um, who lived from 1860 to 1953. Um, And that was the sort of the first time that I realized that I, that I really enjoyed kind of talking about people's lives and the issues that, that come up when you try to research them and when you try to sort of compare different versions. And so the book on Giselle de Stock was an outgrowth of that. But, that, but that's how I kind of came to biography, really. So just to situate people who haven't read the book yet, Finding the Woman Who Didn't Exist isn't a traditional biography, but rather more of a metabiography, or to put it even more plainly, a book that uses the story of a life to interrogate the process of biography, which for people interested in biography is pretty much the holy grail. Um, But it also means that our conversation today is going to be a bit rogue compared to our standards new books and biography fair. So that said, before we delve into who de Stock was, let's start with an enormous question, which is, why write the biography of a nobody? Yeah, that's a good question, isn't it? Um, I, I I struggled with that a bit because I really couldn't argue that the world had somehow suffered from not knowing who Giselle de Stock was or that somehow putting her back into the picture, into the timeline of things, really changed anything huge about how we thought about the world. But a lot of the issues that came up when I was working on her life are the issues I think that everybody struggles with in terms of thinking about the meaning of a life, how a life is recorded, how you, how either stories about lives get lost or else how you recover those stories again once they have been lost and how you try to retell them in a way that, in a way that is both faithful to what you can know, but also um, takes into account the things that you can't know and how that may or may not distort the shape that you're trying to create in, in, in writing a biography. So um, she's an interesting character, and I think there were many interesting things about her life that, that make it worth retelling. But she's someone who I think is on the margins of the mainstream. Um, and so probably somebody that 
almost nobody's heard of, which which in a way made it kind of interesting and easy, but in a way also made it very hard, you know, to 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 to, to articulate why anybody should care about her life. But um, the answer, I think, to that was, as I say, the, the notion that somehow there was something um, emblematic about the story of recovering her life, of of going back and, and finding out who she really was, because because the name was, was a pseudonym, and that's all we knew for a long time. So one of your stated goals for the book is to demystify aspects of research practices in the humanities. And as someone still summoning the nerve to go to the British Library, I have, I have to thank you for the chapter on the Bibliothèque Nationale in Paris. <laughs> so why did you feel it was important to incorporate the research practice into the text? Um, I think a lot of times we hear the final story of of, of someone's work, whether it's a book, whether it's a lecture, whatever. Um, but sometimes what people are really interested in when you start talking to them is the story of the story. It's how they how they came to do what they did or how they found what they uh, found. And it's a little bit like when we watch videos and we get the making of documentaries, you know, the behind the scenes story of how the film was made or the struggles that people had when they were uh, filming something. And I think there's a there's an analog of that in in academic research. And I think a lot of times it's what the general public is is interested in. And it gets left out of most books because we don't always think of that as being a bona fide academic topic. Um, but I think it's important because it, the conditions in which you do the research and the conditions in which you discover things, in fact, become a way of assessing their usefulness, their truth value. Um, it's it's not irrelevant to the process. And that came up for me several times in the course of researching Giselle de Stock was it became important to know how people found out what they thought they had found out because it became relevant to how I could improve on their search or how I might do it differently or why they might have missed certain things. So it was both, it's both human interest and also it goes to the very heart of what I think um, uh, humanities research is, which is that how we do our research is much more important than people realize sometimes. Mm-hmm. So when did you okay. first encounter Giselle's at talk story? A long time ago, um, when I was working on the on the on the book about Rashield, her name came up because she was somebody who was um, on the margins of Rashield's story, and I and I and I wanted to do a good job, and I wanted to know who she was, and so I started looking at books where she'd been mentioned, and I would find that she would come up in a number of stories, um, but when I went to the footnote, it was clear that people didn't really quite know what to do with this problem and so they would cite one or two things that were thought to be known and then after a while everybody was just sort of citing each other i mean they were they were sort of paraphrasing things but you could read between the lines and you could see that the paraphrases were very carefully worded so that the so that it looked as though people were giving you actual information, but in fact, they themselves didn't necessarily always know, and they were just paraphrasing something else. Um, so this was a, back in about 1995 um, when I was doing the research on on, on the Rachel book. So it's, it was a very long project. It was t- something that took a very long time to to bring it to fruition. But that was that was the original sort of niggle. I mean, it was a footnote or a series of footnotes that just didn't sit right with me, and I couldn't. 
I couldn't quite put them to rest and I couldn't quite leave them alone. And I, it was like, a, you know, a, a tooth that bothers you and you just keep having to sort of fiddle with it a little bit. And, and eventually it just became a project where I said, I have to, I have to find out more about who this person is and, and really put this, put this issue to rest for my own, for my own well-being. So, so often in biographies of women, we biographers have to spend a lot of time justifying their accomplishments as accomplishments because yeah. the accomplishments of women so often look so different from the accomplishments of men. men. But here, you had to justify that the women, women you were writing about actually existed. That's right. An enormously daunting task. That was the first, that was the very first step was to, was to argue um, that she, not only that she existed, but that she existed and she kind of mattered in her own right and not just as, not just as a footnote to other people, not just as a, not just as a background story to somebody like Guy de Maupassant, um, who, she, whose name she was linked to because they, they had been lovers at one point. Um, and so she, she would come up as a background sort of figure in some of the stories about Maupassant, but never quite justifying um, a story in her own right. And it turned out she was an interesting person. She did lots of interesting things. Um, she was accused of things that she hadn't even done, like being a, an anarchist bomber. Um, but I mean, it was all colorful stuff. And, and, um, she was doing very unconventional things at a time when we think that women were a lot more conventional than that. I mean, we're talking sort of 19th century, the sort of the Victorian era, though in France, of course. Um, but we think that women were sort of living in straitjackets. And it turns out she was, she was living a very independent and, and sometimes downright peculiar life, I think. Um, but, but that, that made her interesting. So, so yes, I had to justify that she A existed and B was worth talking about, but I think the material was out there to to do that. So the story is actually written in reverse. How did you settle upon this structure for the book? I had read I had read a biography of a homeless person called Stuart, A Life Backwards, which um which argued that when you don't know what when 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 a person isn't famous and you don't know what they're going to turn into it's actually difficult for the reader to latch on to a story that's told in chronological order because you don't know why you should care you know you get the you know this person was born in this time and then they grew up in these conditions and then they did this and for a figure that isn't already a public figure it's hard to slog through that sometimes because you don't understand why it's all going to matter later and so in the biography of Stuart, we meet Stuart when he's already a homeless person, an adult with problems. And then we are told the story of his childhood and his background as a way of explaining that reality. And I just, it was, it was such a good book. And I thought it was such a good idea and such a good point um, that I, that I ended up borrowing that structure and sort of launching into the middle of the story. Um, in fact, beginning with, with Giselle Destock's death and then working backwards to sort of find her birth and, and tie up some of the loose ends. So it was, it was something I borrowed from someone else to, 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 to give credit, you know, to, uh, to someone else for that. You mentioned in the book of how prior writers seem to purposefully overlook things, um, sources that were available to them that are no longer available to you, um, and where they didn't look deeply enough or didn't interrogate them enough. Um, and I'm curious, as this is a question I've never heard anyone pose to a biographer, but one that seemed to naturally emerge from your text, what do you feel was the dynamic that arose between you and the researchers who'd come before you years before? Yeah, that's a good question. I I was um I was both amused by their exchange and I felt I could I felt I could stand back and I was uh, I could be a little bit removed from them because what they were doing was essentially 
they were just enjoying having the debate. I mean, there was plenty of information when they were when they were trying to decide whether Giselle de Stock actually existed or not. There were there were ways they could have settled the question, um, not least by just going to a library. You know, this was this was happening in Paris, and they could have gone to the Bibliothèque Nationale. There would have been clues. Um, but obviously, they were just having way too much of a good time, just just having this ding dong uh, fight in in the pr- in print with each other, and being able to sort of trade insults and call each other names and and say how how incompetent each other was. Um, so I partly was a, I was partly on the sidelines and in, enjoying watching the fight, but it also made me realize that a lot of times I think in 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 academia we enjoy we enjoy the discussion. I mean, we're in it for the gossip, we're in it for the for the talking points, and for the for the social interactions that it enables and sometimes if you answer the questions too quickly you shut down that that pleasurable discourse um so it reminded me that i too am a participant in some of those things and 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 i have to think about myself sometimes and whether i'm am i really am i really doing something because i just like the conversation i'm having um or do i uh um, am I overlooking a way of settling a question that that I should be thinking of? But I think it I think it illustrates again how in the humanities a lot of what we do is about the exchange and and not simply a not simply a producing information or or the the way people think of sciences as you know producing some some new knowledge. I think we're more about we're more about reframing knowledge than producing new knowledge necessarily. And you mentioned toward the end how expectation comes into play. Um, can you discuss that a little bit more? Um, yes, expectation, I think, shapes a lot of times in ways that we don't fully comprehend or give credit to. It shapes the way we set out to look for something. So if you think that you're looking for a certain thing, you you look a certain way um, and maybe you don't look in other places be- because you're not even aware of the, your own assumptions. And the example in the book, I think, is when I was looking for Giselle Destock's birth certificate, and I had to go. I had to go to Nancy in eastern France because that's where the records are. It's it's um things are still kept in regional archives in in France in a lot of cases. Um, so I I was looking for her birth record, and we had a notion about when people thought she was born. But it turned out that the way the records themselves are stored and combined with the expectations about when she was born had had created a kind of um, blind spot, if you like, for past researchers because the records are stored in um, 10-year summary um uh, Dossiers, you know, when people, when when a when a when a clerk in France starts keeping birth records and death records and marriage records, and and one of the one of the phenomena is precisely the fact that those things are kept in different volumes. But you know, you start on January the first and you start writing down who's born that year. But of course, when people come to look for records, they don't know the date. That's the whole point. So at the end of the year, the clerk sort of does this summary at the back of the book. And then every 10 years, somebody takes all that information and they put it together in one 10-year summary. Um, so the starting point for looking for Giselle Destock, uh, once we knew her real name and, and uh, had a better idea about where to look, was to go back to these registers. Um, but the registers, they're, they're these big, heavy, leather-bound, old, dusty, I mean, you know, the, the, the sort of the stereotype of, of dusty archives is totally appropriate here. Uh, so you have to sort of get them down from the shelf and then you've got to find the, the, the summaries and you've got to go through all these. And, and it was clear to me that people had started looking in one, um, one of these 10-year summaries where they thought they should be looking. 
which was the 1860s. Um, and, and they, they'd found one person there that they thought might be a possible candidate. And, but of course, you know, you don't, you don't settle just for the, for the first thing you find. And then they'd gone back and they'd looked in the 1850s and they hadn't found anything there. And then they'd sort of given up, I think, you know, because they just thought, oh, she can't possibly be older than that. And so the sort of the light bulb that went on for me was, was not, was no, you know, I have to look, I have to look further than that. Um, and I looked in the volumes for the 1840s and sure enough, you know, there, there, there it was, but it was clear to me that because people had expectations about how old they thought she was, they sort of looked a little bit and they'd looked, they'd gone, they'd gone beyond the obvious and they, they'd looked a little further afield, but not far enough. And the reason was simply because of the way the information was stored. So they were frustrated by their own expectations and by, the sort of material conditions that you have to do research in, and and that 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 very simple thing um, had had sort of stymied people for a long time, um, and and once I revised my assumptions and and looked a bit further, sure enough, there was the information. Well, I like the detail also that if you had to that they had the person they thought that she was, but then had they looked in the death records, they would have seen that she lived to only be a month old, and it couldn't have possibly been her. Precisely, yes, and I think that that's a, that's a good illustration again because 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 the death records are in a different volume to the birth records. Mm-hmm. I mean, I didn't think of looking at that. It was it was sort of almost by accident that I came across that. Um, but you know, you'd have to actually go and look in a different set of books to find that information. You you don't always think to do that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it was it was very it was very educational for me to, to to actually go to these archives and and handle the books and see how the information was stored and see and see how people actually uh, go about doing the kind this kind of research. Mm-hmm. So, as we mentioned, there's a lot of interrogation of the previous sources um, or the previous writers. Could you give us an example of a supposed fact that you had to dismantle? Well, one of the facts, as I said, was that, that people thought so. People had had identified um, Giselle de Stock. We people pretty much knew that her her birth name was Courbe, um, C O U R B E, um, and they knew that she was from Nancy. So somebody at some point had had gone and, as I said, they'd looked in these these volumes and they'd come up with this person from the eighteen sixties, um, and and so they were they they were then convinced that this is who she, who she was and people said oh well you know it's not the right first name because the the true person the the, the real person was marie alice um and um this person was marie elise you know it wasn't the right name but you know people don't always go with their birth names and they don't necessarily keep the same name and and, and they tried they went through all sorts of contortions to try to make this date fit so for example, there was a there was some uh, acknowledgement that it, she had um, she'd been uh, she had a career as an artist and that she had exhibited in the Paris salons in the 1870s, and somehow they were trying to make it fit that she could be born in the 1860s and be exhibiting in Paris in the 1870s, which would have made her a, a child prodigy. I mean, you know, you would think that if that were true, then. There would be there would be stories all over the place about her because she would have been such a phenomenon to have to have been such a such a great artist at such a young age. Um, but but you know people would try to sort of reconcile these these impossible facts. Um, so for me, part of what I needed to do was uh, 
acknowledge that these things couldn't all fit into the same narrative. Something had to give, and it, and it the birth date was was pretty clearly the thing that had to give. So I I knew that 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 identification that had stood for such a long time couldn't possibly be right, and I needed to go to Nancy to to to, to, to look at what other possible records they might have overlooked and and indeed there it was you know and the, and so the lesson is don't you know don't don't delegate that thing kind of thing to somebody else at some point you've got to you've got to go and look for yourself and make sure that that the that people are giving you all the information so this is a, probably a question we should have started out with but who was Justelle a stock um well it turns out she was she was uh, a girl from the provinces she was born in Nancy but um, she moved to Paris fairly fairly young, and she started out as an artist working mostly in sculpture. From from what we can tell, the the records about her artwork aren't very aren't very um, complete at this point. Um, but obviously, she had um, made connections with writers and um, in in other areas, and she became kind of a polemicist. Um, she she got involved in in uh debates in the in in the in the popular press and she was she was clearly a bit of a a a a, a, a controversial person and uh, and contestatory you know she seemed she seems to have liked actually getting in fights with people and and literally literally and verbally um so she took this pen name Giselle Destock and and Destock is just a french word for sword so it's sort of you know announcing the fact that you are taking up the sword, either literally or figuratively. Um, but through some of these connections, she, she then got involved more in writing. So she did some of her own writing. Um, as I said, she, she, was, she was involved with uh, Guy de Maupassant for a while in the 1880s, and uh, that might have had something to do with it. Um, she might have been inspired by him. So she wrote some short stories. Um, she wrote some things about she, – she, she planned a much bigger work about Joan of Arc. She only seems to have published one installment – but she was very interested in Joan of Arc as an androgynous figure. So she ends up in as a sort of journalist and and would-be writer, though though as I said, she, her initial career was was in the in the arts. So she spanned a number of different um a number of different uh, genres in that way without you know without sort of marking any one of them in any indelible fashion. Um, you, you know, dabbling more more than really making a mark in any of these things, but but an interesting person because she was she she was very committed, obviously, and 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 cared very deeply about about a lot of issues. And we do know how she died, correct? Well, we know where she died. There's a we, what we don't know is really how she died. Um, French death certificates don't record the cause of death, unlike British ones. Not that that necessarily makes them totally reliable, um, but in, the French ones don't don't give any reasons. So there's a report by a journalist that she actually died of leprosy, which would be extremely interesting if it's true. I mean, there's you know leprosy in in France in the 1890s can't have been that common of a of, of an illness. But in fact, that was one of the things that I wasn't able to verify. Um, Maybe those records exist somewhere. Um, they would be in Nice, which is where she died. Um, but I, I didn't have the time or the the access to to pursue that. But that's for someone else to follow up if they ever care to. But it would be interesting to know. Mm -hmm. 
So how has she appeared in the 20th century? Well, she comes up in the 20th century just before World War II um, when a journalist claims to publish her love diary that she left with Maupassant. This is a controversial claim, but this is what then sparked this debate about you know, was was this person just a hoax or was there really somebody behind that, that pseudonym? That's a question that still, in a sense, remains because, to my knowledge, we don't know where that diary is. So it's very hard to to verify that it that that it that, she, that that it exists that she really wrote it that it wasn't a hoax but this but this really sort of reintroduces her name and then people people are interested partly at this point because she was involved with Maupassant so there's a whole sort of area of scholarship Maupassant people Maupassant biographers who are interested in tracking down who Maupassant's lovers were who he was involved with um, anything to do with him, so that's one area that that uh, that, that she comes up. And then, as I said, in the, in the in the case of Rashield, she seems to have had an affair with Rashield in the mid eighteen eighties, um, and we know about that because she left a, a very a very mean, a very nasty, vitriolic book about Rashield that she sort of seems to be settling all kinds of scores with her in the book. Um, Though it it's an interesting source of information about Rachel, she's not necessarily entirely wrong, but she just she does exaggerate and she does lay it on very thick. So um, one has to read it with a grain of salt. But it's an interesting book. Um, but so when people started getting interested in Rachel, they sort of would stumble across this book, and and it was puzzling. People people weren't sure whether it was supposed to be read as fiction. They didn't necessarily recognize right away that it was a a roman à clé. Um, but as I said, once you realize that it that that it that it seems to have a grain of truth to it, it's it's an interesting book about Hashield. So um, from there, you get the idea that I think in the twentieth century that that women's lives were interesting, that there was work that hadn't been done in in terms of how women's biographies are different to those of men, for example, um, women who women whose lives were worth taking a second look at, where they might have been dismissed before. I think a lot of those questions. You know, in in the latter part of the twentieth century, made made it ripe for a reassessment of her life. Mm-hmm. So, what do you see as her legacy? Oh, well, that's a good question. Her legacy, I think, is 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 that the nineteenth century is a lot more interesting and varied than perhaps we give it we give it credit. It's as I said, it's very easy, I think, to come away from the nineteenth century with the assumption that there were so many constraints on women's lives that they couldn't possibly have done anything interesting or that it was very hard for them to do anything interesting. And, and I, I, it may well have been hard, but I mean, she was clearly somebody who, who seized opportunities with both hands. She wasn't going to be uh, constrained by social expectations. She wasn't going to be kept in a place that she didn't want to stay. She was going to live her life to the fullest and I think that helps us see a different different patterns, different different ways that women were able to live, to to be creative, to follow their ambitions in a time that we normally think of as as one that that placed a lot of constraints on them. So I think the legacy is to the legacy is both what it tells us about the nineteenth century, but also then what it tells us about writing biography today and the ch- both the challenges and the rewards of looking for lives that are not perhaps the conventional ones, the ones that don't fit the mold. Well, thank you so much for talking with us today. Do you have any idea who you're going to be writing about next? I'm I'm currently working on René Vivien, who was a 
Anglo-French poet. She was born in London, but she wrote in French and she lived in France. Very short life because she died very early at 32. Um, but, but, but somebody, again, who I think is very interesting, she's mostly remembered for poetry, but I think there are many other aspects to her life that are worth reconsidering and reevaluating. So that's, that's where I'm headed next. Exciting. I'm talking today with Melanie C. Hawthorne about her book, Finding the Curious Woman Who Didn't Exist. I'm Oline Eaton. This is New Books and Biography. Thanks for listening. <laughs>